Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. Despite the Christmas break, British politics barely stopped and 2018 has begun with a startling pace. None of have been busier than today's guest, Andrew Adonis. This is a special review show for episode 13. I'm Connor Pope. I'm joined by Progress Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd, and the three of us will be looking back over the past few weeks. One of the biggest stories of the New Year period was Andrew Adonis's resignation as chair of the UK Infrastructure Commission. Largely, this resignation was down to the government's Brexit policy. But before we get onto that, I want to ask about the railways. The running of the railways always becomes a big issue in the first week of January due to fare rises. And in recent years, this has led to a greater push from the left for wholesale renationalisation of the rail franchises. Now, Andrew, in your resignation letter to Theresa May, you said that the Transport Secretary, Chris Grayling's decision to bail out the stagecoach Virgin East Coast franchise was indefensible and inexcusable. Can you explain a bit about what happened there, what should have been done, and why it made your role advising on infrastructure untenable? What happened was that the uh, two private companies that run the East Coast Main Line, that's the line that goes from uh, London to York and Edinburgh, overbid for the contract. This is a stagecoach in Virgin. They overbid for the contract. They were facing big losses and they went cap in hand to Chris Grayling and said, could we please have a bailout? Because their problem is that this contract runs until 2023 and they're due to pay more than two billion worth of payments to the government between now and 2023. Now, I know that situation very well indeed, because that is precisely what happened to me when I was Labour's Transport Secretary in 2009. And a different, uh, but also very wealthy company, National Express, was then running the franchise. And they came along to me and said, um, they also had a similar time to run another three or four years of their contract. And they said, we're now making big losses. And they said two things to me. They said, the first is the economy is going belly up. So everyone is going to have to renegotiate. So you might as well start with us. Uh, They said that quite belligerently. And uh, I said, well, uh, I'm not 
sure whether that's true or not, but I'm certainly not going to give you a big handout because that absolutely guarantees that the whole pack of cards will collapse if I do that. But then they said to me, but in any case, um, Andrew, you've got no alternative because no one else is going to run the trains. So if you if uh, if we don't run them, there are going to be no trains. And at that point, uh, I snapped and said, no, you don't understand me. Since the age of five, one thing I've wanted to do in my life is to run a train company. <laughs> and so what I did was I got some really outstanding rail managers and literally over the course of a week, we put a public company together called East Coast, which you know, I called the bluff of National Express. We ran the trains and most of the public thought that the service was better than it was when it was run by National Express. Certainly the quality of service was better, passenger confidence was better, and we had much, much better deals for fare payers, partly because we didn't have to pay exorbitant dividends, which had been paid before. So that was all a great success. But the other thing that was crucially important about it is that by saying to National Express, if you default, I will nationalise you. And what I also did was to ban them from bidding for new contracts. And National Express is still running no rail contracts in Britain. So that was, you know, that was a, a very, uh, from their point of view, uh, lethal threat. This discouraged anyone else from defaulting. Because what would have happened if uh, they'd been able to get a handout from a Labour government is uh, everyone else would have wanted the handout too. So in a curious and paradoxical way, I'm both the hero of the left and the sensible <laughs> right. The left, because I set up a, a, a public rail company, which I'm very, very proud of. And, and the government, what I said should have happened was that they should have kept the East Coast franchise and the public company should then have been able to bid for new franchises. You know, I'm a social democratic pragmatist. My own view is that there's a big role for the state and there's a big role for the private sector and we need to get the best out of both of them. And I think that what should happen when it comes to rail contracts is that public companies should bid against private ones and we see who offers the public the better deal. What the Tories did for ideological reasons was to abolish the public East Coast company and they banned it from bidding for new contracts when it had an outstanding group of managers, real public servants, who I think could have taken on several more franchises and would have done it well. Now, what's happened this time is not only has Chris Grayling offered a handout to Stagecoach and Virgin on the East Coast because he's not prepared to threaten a public company, but even worse, he's allowing them to bid for future rail contracts. So the next three big rail contracts, which are worth many billions, Stagecoach, one of the wealthiest companies in the country, is on the shortlist for all three. So what disincentive will there be for any other private company not to default now if they know that while they've got Chris Grayling and the Tories there, they can get away with blue murder? So what I see here in terms of the wider policy is what we need is sensible social democratic pragmatism. What we should have is a strong public sector, including public companies, which bid for rail contracts. And then that will help to discipline the private sector to doing what it is often very good at doing, which is innovating and offering new types of services and so on. Uh, but as I uh, put it to the Daily Mail, which has become um, a huge um, hostile force so far as Brexit's concerned, but actually quite admires what I'm doing on the railways, I said to them that Chris Grayling is doing more than Jeremy Corbyn and Karl Marx combined to make the case for public ownership of the railways. <laughs> so public ownership of the railways is actually, I think you kind of touched upon it there. It is a popular idea. It's admired on the left and even has admiration from people like the Daily Mail on the right. What do you think of the shortcomings of it then, considering that the left certainly hold up that East Coast line when it was publicly owned as being one of the main reasons why we should go ahead with kind of wholesale nationalisation. My view of how to run um, public services well is that monopolies are almost always bad, whether they're public or private. And I remember British Rail, let's be 
clear-sighted about this. British Rail was not the most successful organisation in the country when uh, it was running all the railways <laughs> without any competition or any diversity at all in the 1960s and 70s. And therefore, I myself would be, I, I wouldn't simply hand the whole lot to a new big state monolith. What I think should happen is there should be some powerful state companies and East Coast is a great opportunity to recreate a state company because uh, until three years ago, we had one. Indeed, many of the managers are still around. You know, many of them are friends of mine. If if uh, I, I spoke to them, I think we could probably do a good job of recruiting them. So what I would like to see happen now, and this is in main, should be sort of mainstream, pragmatic labour thinking, is that we create very powerful public companies and then they bid for contracts in future. Now, I think what would then happen is, if I had to say what I think would happen over the next five to ten years, I reckon about half the contracts will go to powerful state companies and then some of the private companies have got their act together, which, uh, you know, who realise that they've really got to compete and offer a much better deal to the taxpayer, uh, they would get some of the contracts too. I think that would be fine. Now, so the direction of travel, I think, is is exactly um, as Jeremy Corbyn has laid out. What I wouldn't do, though, is say as a matter of principle at the outset that everything is going to be nationalised because, let's be frank, if the public companies knew that they were going to face no challenge whatsoever Soever, I think they might become a bit lethargic too. <laughs> now, Steph, I know I've done it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have done it. And I'm sure you as well have been outside railway commuter stations in the early hours of uh, the 2nd of January on various occasions handing out leaflets about rising fares. Do you think that there has not been enough to explain why fares rise and that this support for nationalisation has become inevitable because of that? I think so. And I think Andrew actually hits the nail on the head in lots of ways when it comes to this, because if you are a commuter and you are seeing your wages stagnate, you are seeing struggling finances with your own personal finances in terms of what that's happening and, uh, and you know, really stagnating living conditions for people in the country. And then you are seeing governments handing out, whilst they constantly tell us there is no magic money tree, billions of pounds to incompetent companies who are then handing out money to their shareholders whilst raising your fares constantly. And when you see around the rest of the world that 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 isn't how it has to happen. And we've seen previously in this country, as you say, with East Coast, that this isn't how it has to happen. I think, of course, there's going to be genuine and legitimate huge frustration and anger from people. The problem is, is that it is seen as the only alternative because, you know, it's such a pinnacle part of kind of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of wing of the party that we should just nationalise it and that will immediately solve all of the problems. There's no real depth that goes into that in terms of what these problems are. It is seen as the only alternative. And I think there has to be the kind of discussions that, that we're having today in terms of what are the key problems and what are the problems that are going to, you know, why are the reasons that these these companies are behaving the way that they do, whether private or public? And the monopoly of those is is the, is the large part of that. How do we change those and take those forward? And of course, like so many parts of the railway system are so old, need so much upgrading. Mm. And if you look at stuff like HS2, which I know, I know Andrew, obviously you've been a big proponent of over the years, it's taken so long to get anywhere near the construction of it from the first proposal that I don't know how you managed to actually upgrade the system to where it needs to be without actually a lot of investment. Well, you said you don't start by giving £2 billion to Richard Branson yeah. and Brian Souter <laughs> because that's £2 billion less for yeah. either cutting fares or for investing in, as you say, in the new projects that we need. And that's what I think is so sad about what's happened, really, is that what's happened, but it needs to be seen as part of the bigger picture yeah. because the pragmatic thing to do, this isn't a question of left wing or right wing, the pragmatic and correct thing to do if you're a minister is, of course, to get the best value for the taxpayer. Mm. And my great... Uh, 
uh, charge against Chris Grayling is that uh, what he has done is he's put ideology before his duty to the country. Because, uh, you know, it was patently clear that his duty to the country lay in telling Stagecoach and Virgin that if they didn't fulfil their contracts, he would hold them accountable. And yeah. holding them accountable means one of two things. It either means that they forfeit the contracts or it means they must pay some other very big penalty and preferably both. What he did, far from holding them accountable, is he said, fine, what kind of deal would you now like? This is what he did to them. And it's, I mean, they're meant to be our chief yeah. negotiator. This is our chief negotiating <laughs> government exactly. here that just go, okay, what would you like? And, and, and if we and did that in anything or if any business did that in any scenario, people would be, you know, absolutely bemused. The other, let's be clear, the other private railway companies are aghast at what's happened. Yeah. They can't believe what's happened because it's been the talk in the industry. Because, of course, you know, I'm close to these people. It's been yeah. the talk in the industry for months that the East Coast franchise was on the ropes because Virgin and Stagecoach had overbid for it. Mm. And everyone was expecting that they would do something similar to what I did in 2009 instead of a state company. They couldn't believe it when he didn't. But the bigger picture, even than sort of right-wing ideological ministers, is that this is all of a part with Brexit. Because mm. let's be clear, the only reason why Chris Grayling is a minister is because he was a wild Brexiteer. Yeah. And she had to fill whatever it was, about half of the government with wild Brexiteers. And I remember the discussion I had with a very senior minister who said to me, we thought that the safest place to put Chris was transport <laughs> because he couldn't do too much damage. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he seems to have managed to do quite a lot of damage. There. Indeed. But this is all of a piece. And the part of the other side, which really worries me, is that the civil service has been very weak in this process. Mm. I'm amazed that the senior civil servants in the Department of Transport allowed Chris Grayling to do this because of the straightforward value for money issues concerned. The civil service is rightly neutral when it comes to party politics. Mm. But when it comes to wasting, flagrantly wasting public money, at that point, they obviously, because they're accountable to government auditors and so on, they normally become quite vocal. Why weren't they vocal this time? I think it's part and parcel of the problem that about 70% of the senior civil service at the moment is obsessing with Brexit. And it's proving such a tough call for them that they aren't paying nearly enough attention to all those other big issues. And what we've seen in this rail bailout fiasco is just one example but there are lots of others why are we not doubling the rate of home building why is we, are we having the extent of the nhs crisis we've got at the moment you, know, you could go down the list a good part of the explanation now is that the government is basically doing nothing other than brexit hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, Richard, I've heard a rumor that if people like the Progressive Britain podcast, there's something that they can do to help us out. There is, Alison. People can subscribe themselves. They can rate our podcast wow. on iTunes and they can leave a review. And that means that it not just gets to the audience that's already listening to the Progressive Britain podcast, but gets to other audiences. And Connor and I do a review show that comes out every Friday where we pick not just the best review, but the people who are engaging most with the podcast, who leave their review, that we give out a book, sometimes a mug, to the people who be engaging most. So we're keen to hear and make this a two-way conversation. So it's not just about audience participation. There's fancy gifts too. What more could you want? Amazing. Now, you mentioned um, the duty to your country and, and that idea. And you're not the only Labour grandee who has taken on a role in a commission or indeed recently resigned from one because Alan Milburn also recently resigned as chair of the Social Mobility Commission, despite being there since 2010. Why do you think that both of you came to the end of your tether at such a similar time? And do you think now there is no way that progressives can kind of play an advisory role with this government the way it is? What Alan and I both found, though interestingly, uh, we didn't speak until it had happened. So we didn't realise we were both. I didn't even know he was resigning from the Social Mobility Commission until I literally uh, read it in the in the papers, and he didn't know I was uh, moving in the same direction. And the National Infrastructure Commission. The problem we both had was dealing with a really deeply ideological right wing government that has entirely abandoned the centre ground. And Brexit is part and parcel of that, but it's not the only aspect mm. of it. It's mm. that there are many other aspects of it too. We're seeing it this week in the blasé way that they're dealing with the NHS crisis, where they appear to be blaming it on the patients, that mm. you know, if any week can cancel all their appointments and, and they kept away from the hospitals, everything yeah. would be fine. Uh, we've seen it on the railways. I mean, and also it is so cheap as well. Really cheap. The thing that really made my resignation unavoidable was that the government told me that they would stop. This is the government telling its own advisory body that it would stop cooperating with us if I if I continued criticising Chris Grayling. <laughs> <laughs> now, since my job was to offer independent advice, what I was essentially being told was that offering independent advice, which is the whole purpose of the National Infrastructure Commission, was no longer welcome. Mm. Well, at that point, of course, you have to resign because you've got no choice. The whole purpose of the National Infrastructure Commission Commission is supposed to be an independent body which offers independent advice. You know, mm. I never took it on on any other basis. Uh, once that stopped uh, being welcomed, then of course the position was untenable. And I think Alan found the same. And think- almost anyone who's sensible in Whitehall is finding the same. Let's be clear what's happening. Loads of people are leaving the civil service at the moment. Yeah. The Brexit departments, the Department for International Trade and DEXU, the Department for Exiting the European Union, are finding it almost impossible to recruit senior staff. This sort of disaffection of uh, the Mandarin class with the government we haven't seen since the Suez crisis. And it's for the same reason that it's one thing to have a disagreement with the government on policy and belong to a different party. It's another thing that to, to believe that what the government is essentially doing is trashing the national interest. Mm. And that's what I would say a good half of the civil service thinks at the moment. Do you think the government's got worse since the election result? Much worse. Mm. Because what's happened since the election is that having failed to win the election, they're pretending as if they had. Yeah. But because they haven't got a majority in the House of Commons, the only way they can survive now is by systematically bullying. 
You see, what happened to me, I mean, I'm, I'm a grown-up, so I resigned rather than accept it, is they essentially tried to bully me in my commission and also my civil servants mm. who are having to do the work day by day, which I, fi- I found totally unacceptable. Why? Because they didn't want criticism from us because they don't have a majority in Parliament. They know how weak sensitive. they are. Yeah. So what we've got at the moment is a government that didn't win the election, which ought to, you know, when governments don't win the election and you have hung parliaments, history suggests that what you do is you move to the centre. Mm. What's happened in this case is that they've moved to the right, thinking yeah. if they can get us out of the European Union ASAP, then maybe at that point they might get a majority. Yeah. No, Steph, Tony Blair had a major intervention on Brexit this week, saying that Labour's leadership is attempting to have its own cake and eat it by sending out conflicting messages on Brexit. And we've had research from Queen Mary's University of London this week as well, showing that party members have a pretty clear view on it all. So where do you think that Labour currently is on Brexit? And do you think it's moving in the right direction? I think it is trying to have its cake and eat it. And I think we saw saw that at the snap election and I think in lots of ways for for Labour if you look at it quite crudely it worked for them at the last election they allowed people who were very anti-Brexit and you see that in a lot of the swell of new members that have joined particularly lots of younger members that have joined the party um want to go and join because they think that this is the way that they can stop Brexit and it's the Labour Party is the only option that's going to be able to do that. But also then you're seeing lots of people who are saying, well, actually, they're saying that Brexit is Brexit and they will deliver it and they're not seeing a huge difference between the two, but are more traditionally of the Labour mentality. So so are joining. And I think there is a point now and, and the point is 2018 where this becomes impossible and also the wrong thing to do in terms of what we should be doing as a party. We need to be making the arguments of the dangers of the hard Brexit that they are pushing for. We need to be making it very, very clear to people what the different options are of that. And I think one of the one of the best bits that I saw within kind of Tony's article that he that he published um, this week was when he said that referendum was like asking people in a general election, do you like the current government? And the answer was yes or no. And most people are going to say no, but you're not giving them any alternative. And I think in whatever mechanism that comes to, proclaiming as you hear so often now that it is anti-democratic to ask people, here are the clear options on both sides of what this looks like as anti-democratic and anti, you know, when, when it was such a close result. Is absolutely absurd. And if I hear one more person on the radio proclaiming that this is metropolitan elitism at its best, I'm literally just going to cry, I think, because the idea that, you know, 16 million people in this country are the metropolitan elites that are desperate to, to, you know, stay in the European Union is absolutely absurd. And the problem is, is that the vacuum that Labour have left in terms of their willingness to not engage in this argument properly because of their own internal splits in this, as we saw at conference, has left the narrative to be entirely defined by what is the the hard right of the Tory party and people that want to pull us out of Europe in any way possible, no matter what the damage. So Andrew, that research on Labour members said that 87% of members want us to stay in the single market, 85% want to stay in the customs union, and 78% of Labour Party members want there to be a second referendum. Now, this sounds quite close to a lot of what you've been uh, (laughs) supporting as well. Do you think that this will actually make a difference in in how the leadership approach it? I hope so. There's overwhelming support inside the the party for uh, staying in Europe. And uh, I'm just surprised that uh, the leadership has been so slow in recognising that. And the younger the members, of course, the more passionate they are about staying. I've been to quite a few university meetings over recent months and uh, never forget going to to Warwick University and, and speaking at the Labour Club 
uh, two or three months ago. And I said at the beginning, if we could stop Brexit, completely none of this soft Brexit business, but mm. just stop it, pretend you know this national nightmare is now over, how many of you would like to do so? And every hand but one went up. And yeah. I said, okay, I'm now going to tell you how I think we can do it. And I laid out how I thought, you know, if Labour moved, then we'd be down to 10 or 15 votes in the House of Commons on a referendum, not crucially a second referendum, but a first referendum on Theresa May's deal, and that's mm. what we should aim for. And if we did that before March 2019, then we could stay. And uh, after we'd had a discussion about it in the end, I said, well, uh, how many of you think this is credible and plausible that we could do this? And every hand but one went up, and the same hand didn't go up. <laughs> and I said to the guy who hadn't put up his hand, I said, what do I need to do to persuade you? And he said, oh, don't worry, I'm the UKIP plant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, that's what uh, young Labour members think. Mm. And they're the future they're, the, they're absolutely the future. But even amongst older Labour members, they're still overwhelmingly in favour of staying, and including Jeremy's generation yeah. too. Indeed, most of Jeremy's members in Islington are, are passionately in favour of staying in the European Union. If you, if you had a poll in Islington North of Labour members, I reckon you'd get roughly similar proportions, mm. 80 to 90% of them in favour. Now, Jeremy is very good on party democracy. Mm. And uh, when you get degrees of... Um, near unanimity of that kind, then I would have thought he'd start paying attention. I remember when uh, members were pushing for a, a proper vote on Brexit at Labour Party conference yeah. last year, and there was delegates who would go up and say, we don't want to have this vote because we think it'll be divisive, and it's not the time to be divisive. And like, A, I'm not sure that is the best argument against having a vote anyway, but B... Frankly, I've rarely seen the Labour Party so united on, yeah, on this issue. Absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. You know, hopefully then there will now be a proper vote come conference this year. Well, the mm. other, other crucial point about it now is that time is running out. Yeah. That you might have been able to use the argument last year that let this thing run further and uh, it's the end game that's important. We're heading towards this the end game. This is becoming the end game, yeah. This is part of the reason why I resigned was that when I thought about whether, you know, it was... Uh, um, on the Brexit thing, whether even despite all of the horrors of dealing with, with Chris Grayling and co, there might be something to be said for trying to influence things from the inside. Well, the conclusion I reached is not only are they not interested in mm. advice, but in any case, we're down basically to the last six to nine months because unless we take decisions on staying in by the autumn... Uh, it'll be too late. We'll mm. be out in March 2019 and the decisions will have been taken. So uh, the, I think the argument which was running inside the party last year, that, you know, let the government get deeper into the mess and, and then we exploit it. Mm. Well, the, the, now's we the got, time. We haven't got much further to go. And let's be clear, they are deep in the mess. They are. So they're deep in the mess. It is coming to the end game. Now is the time when we have to stand up and be counted. And there's no point in being a politic. You know, the, the thing I was, because I've, I've been doing this, this game now for a while, and I'm, I, I'm struck by how many people in politics, including people at very senior levels, do their whatever it is, five, ten years at the top, and then have nothing to show for it at all. And you forget them. I mean, I could run for a whole list of names, but it would be invidious. <laughs> people who held office in the great Labour government of, of Blair and Brown and have got nothing to show for it at all. And the big, big mistake in politics is to think that big decisions you should take now will be politically easier if you put them off a year or two. Mm. If that's the reason why you put them off, then what usually happens is they get put off indefinitely. So now is the time to stand up and be counted on Europe. And it's not a question of being divisive or non-divisive. It's a question of doing the right thing for the country and for the party. Have you got a book coming out with Will Hilton? Yeah, Will and I are beavering away hard. And uh, we hope to publish um, in the spring uh, on a book on 
basically the anti-Brexit case. But the, the thing about it is it's going to be very different from other anti-Brexit books because most other anti-Brexit books talk about Europe. Our book isn't going to talk that much about Europe at all. It's mostly going to talk about the need to recreate the Attlee government to deal with this acute social crisis, which is what led to Brexit. Because as I've spent time really seriously thinking this through over the last few months, it's clear to me that the thing we didn't do uh, and didn't meet in terms of an, of an argument nearly strongly enough was the sense over a good half to two thirds of, of, of the country that they're getting that, that they've got a raw deal, mm. and let's be frank, they didn't get a, and not enough was done by the last Labour government for them either, and they were basically calling out the elite, yeah. and they see us, the Labour Party, as part of the elite. So a large part of the book is going to be what it means to say that we need a new Attlee government, and it means getting real on uh, housing, on health, on welfare, on living standards, on education, on employment, on the gig economy, all of these things. And one of the things I'm contemplating doing is, um, uh, but I've just got to see if I can get enough hours in the day, is doing a tour of um, the 100 constituencies in the country with the largest leave votes mm. and systematically you know visiting companies and um and unions and schools uh, in 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 those constituencies and speaking to people and then afterwards writing something which will be separate from the book but be a separate piece of work on all of the lessons from those hundred and the, i think the big lesson will be what they want to hear is not about Brexit yep. and Europe. It's not what, about the bureaucracy of the no, European Parliament of and how that works. No, it's what they want what's to hear their life going is, to be like? What's the new deal? Yeah. And that is a, a rights and responsibilities thing too. Mm. They, they, they have a contribution to make as well. But we've got to start offering them a better life. And, and that if the Labour Party doesn't do that, no one will. For me, Brexit is so much more than just, you know, do we stay in the EU and, 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 and how that works and the kind of bureaucracy of that. It is about what is the future of our country and what is it that we want to be? Do we want to be insular, one that only cares about ourselves and that only really looks after certain people? Or do we want to be a really proud, open, global country that tackles all of the key social issues that you're talking about there and actually comes up with answers for the future? Um, and currently, this government is failing on literally every single one of those. Now, on Clement Attlee, it would have been his birthday this week. I think he would have been 134. There was a really good article in the New Yorker this week called Nevermind Churchill, Attlee is the model for these times by the writer Adam Gopnik. In that, he said, Attlee achieved what everything Marx had dreamed of for the British working class without violence. And I wanted to just kind of put to you quickly, do you think that is true or not? Well, the centenary that's more interesting for Attlee is that next year, 2019, is the centenary, the 100th anniversary of Attlee becoming mayor of Limehouse. And it was as mayor of Limehouse in the 1920s that he honed all of those ideas mm. about social welfare, about insurance, about sorting out very, very deprived communities and giving them hope, but also about tough love, mm. about expecting that people did actually deliver on their rights and responsibilities. All of those ideas, which then underpinned the Labour government of 1945. And the other thing about Attlee, he was always known then as Major Attlee. He was a supreme patriot, mm. Attlee. Nobody could come to the right of him and say that somehow he was uh, playing fast and loose with the national interest. And what was quite interesting was that the interplay between him and Churchill, though, of course, they did quite a lot of party politics, there was huge mutual respect. And what the mutual respect was founded on was that Churchill knew that Attlee would never put the country in danger. Mm. The Attlee who created the welfare state and created the NHS was also the Attlee who created NATO, 
And we will only be trusted by the British people when we are big and bold on improving the quality of life, but can be absolutely trusted with the international security of this country. And this brings us back to Brexit. There is nothing more important to the international security of this country at the moment than staying in the European Union. And a big, bold Labour government in the Attlee tradition wouldn't have any truck whatever with Euroscepticism leaving the European Union, just as it wouldn't have any truck with leaving NATO and putting our defence in jeopardy. And it would be every bit as bold in tackling the social crisis. That's why we need Attlee again. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Richard Angel and Alison McGovern will be back on the show on Tuesday as normal service resumes for 2018. If you subscribe, that'll be ready for you to listen to at 6am. And if you rate us on iTunes and leave us a review with any questions or comments, we'll respond on a future show and you'll be in chance to win a prize. Thanks for listening. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.